Welcome to Helix Talk, a podcast presented by the Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. We're hoping that our real-life clinical pearls and discussions will help you stay up-to-date and improve your pharmacy knowledge. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to episode 22 of Helix Talk. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And I'm proud to announce the first ever critical care topic in the Helix Talk episode. Of course you're happy, Dr. Kane. And today we're going to be talking about sedation minimization. And I don't mean preventing students from falling asleep in class. What I mean is uh, reducing the amount of sedatives that we give our ICU patients who are receiving mechanical ventilation. To kind of set the stage for the topic, I wanted to ask both of you two. I assume you've never received mechanical ventilation, right? At least not in the last week or two, no. I think I might have, but they gave me a really good sedative, so I forgot. Okay. So one hot topic in critical care right now is if you were to be mechanically ventilated, which means that they're going to take an endotracheal tube, put it down your trachea, inflate a balloon at the end of it, and then deliver air through that endotracheal tube or ET tube, that seems like a fairly painful procedure to have this big tube down your throat. So the question becomes, would you like to be deeply sedated while you're receiving this therapy? Would you rather be alert and aware of your surroundings, or what would you rather have? I think personally, I would like to be completely knocked out. Just the thought of having something stuck down my throat sounds really frightening. And there's always those horror stories of somebody who wakes up in the middle of it and realizes all of a sudden that they've got a tube shoved down them. So mm-hmm. you hear those stories and you think, okay, that, you know, that may be an issue. So if we think about people as an example, getting their uh, wisdom teeth taken out and getting general anesthesia for that, if that qualifies as an indication for general anesthesia, Uh, The argument is, well, we want our patients basically to not remember anything about their painful ICU stay because of all the things that happen, including mechanical ventilation, but all of the other things like chest tubes and suctioning and turning and things like that. So there's a couple of reasons why we sedate patients. The most obvious one is patients are uncomfortable when they're on mechanical ventilation and we have drug therapy that makes them more comfortable and we call those agent sedatives. So it's only the ethical thing to do. That would be the argument, yes. I think I said one other reason may be to reduce myocardial oxygen demand. We talk about someone who's starting to get either agitated or they're starting to hyper hyperventilate and they get the system revving up and there's a lot of oxygen, a lot of uh, blood flow that has to go to the tissues. And I think the third one, probably most important one when you're in ICU, is to prevent any self-extubation, you know, taking out the lines or catheters or devices on patients doing these things on their own. And that's been an issue I know in some of the patients some of, when I've worked in inpatient psychiatry that you've occasionally had some of the patients when we send out and then that becomes the issue if somebody then becomes agitated and again then there's concern about you know hurting themselves or, or again hurt, hurting other individuals. Mm-hmm. And then there's another term called ventilator dyssynchrony which is a fancy way of saying that the patient doesn't receive or accept a breath from the mechanical ventilator because they're very uncomfortable. So especially in patients who have some kind of lung disease, let's say a really severe pneumonia where we have to be very aggressive in the volume or the pressure that they receive or the rate at which we make them breathe at, that can be very concerning to the patient where they don't accept the breath that the ventilator is trying to give them. Uh, So for those patients, sometimes they do need to be sedated in order to ventilate them appropriately in this abnormal way that we need to ventilate them with the mechanical ventilator. So the big question is, how much is enough Exactly. in this case here? 
So talking about the agents themselves, the sedatives, you know, we have a handful of them out in the market that we can utilize or have been used thus far. The first category is benzodiazepine, mainly um, midazolam, brand name Bursad, or lorazepam, brand name Ativan. Right. I know within that class, and I think Dr. K may be speaking on this a little bit later, but you have kind of distinguishing characteristics such as do they have active metabolites? Do they have inactive metabolites? How long do they linger in the body? And that can be something that can be a concern when choosing one of these agents and the risk benefit of it. Yeah, and as, as we'll talk about, benzodiazepines used to be the workhorse sedative in the ICU, and that practice has actually changed over the past uh, 10 to 15 years, and we'll definitely touch on that. Kind of the thing that has taken uh, the place of benzodiazepines as uh, the quote-unquote workhorse is probably propofol. So the brand name of propofol is Diprovan. Oh, is it not Michael Jackson drug? It is my, the same medication that Michael Jackson used as a sleep agent inappropriately that uh, caused respiratory depression and eventually his death. But we use it very safely and very commonly in the ICU and people who have who are intubated with mechanical ventilation where the issues of respiratory depression are not a problem. The third agent, probably a little bit more expensive out of the all the agents, is dexmedetomidine. Brand name is Presidex. And that one is recently introduced in the market not too long ago. And like I said, uh, we'll talk about the cost of it, but it is one of the costlier agents. And I found this one to be an interesting one. I believe it's an alpha-2 agonist, so it, it kind of works on some of these noradrenergic receptors to kind of, again, bring down the system. So just like that fight-or-flight mechanism we talked about in calming individuals down, reducing myocardial workload, and a different type of receptor to kind of produce some gating or slowing down of some of those impulses. And I'm sure that we have at least one other alpha-2 agonist on the market, not for sedation in the ICU, but clonidine is the other agent that pharmacologically is very similar to dexmedetomidine or Presidex in the sense that it's an alpha-2 agonist that basically decreases the total amount of sympathetic tone you have in certain areas of the brain. And uh, they do get in different places within the brain, but I think that helps understand the pharmacology of Right, and just like clonidine can be used in both hypertension and also has been used off-label in treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So just in the same way you can then say, okay, then something like dexmedetomidine, by nature of its alpha-2 agonism, could be used in maybe a place that's not just hyper, you know, not hypertension, but in a more neurologic area. And the, kind of the final agent that we have at our disposal for sedation are actually opioids. And this is interesting because opioids aren't typically thought as a sedative, we think of them more as an analgesic. So the typical opioids that are available to us as a continuous infusion in the ICU are morphine or more commonly fentanyl. Both of these at higher doses actually do have a sedative quality to them in addition to their analgesic or pain relief property. And we'll talk more about why that's actually an incredibly attractive option, at least a first-line option for ICU sedation. That's what I believe going back to the idea about sedation minimization is there's the issue about drugs accumulating over time. Could either of you all speak to that? Sure. So we know we talked about the opioids being used for sedation, although they're, you know, first-line analgesics. Um, morphine is one of them that comes to mind when we talk about, you know, active metabolites. The active metabolite is morphine-6-glucuronide, which is, again, renally eliminated, but if patient's renal function is down, which is very possible in ICU patients, then we are running into prolonged sedation or even um, other side effects of morphine. Absolutely. The other big offender in addition to morphine is midazolam. And I actually hate midazolam or Versed as a continuous infusion. It's really a nice drug for a quick IV push because it has one of the quickest onsets of the benzodiazepines that are available to us. But 
when you hang a midazolam or a versed infusion, it becomes an extremely long acting agent over a one to two day period as you accumulate two different actin metabolites. So the first actin metabolite is produced through the liver with uh, CYP3A4. And as you know, 3A4 is uh, the most common CYP enzyme system in terms of drugs that use it for metabolism and also drugs that like to cause drug interactions with that pathway. The second thing that happens once you go through 3A4 is you make another active metabolite, which is, again, like morphine, is a glucuronide product. So now we have two different active metabolites. We're susceptible to drug interactions, interpatient variability, and issues with renal dysfunction where you'll start accumulating these uh, less active but still active metabolites. So uh, with both morphine and midazolam as continuous infusions, we absolutely have to worry about this term called the pharmacology of oversedation, where because of the pharmacology of the drug, with prolonged use of continuous infusions, patients will start accumulating these drugs and they won't wake up when we turn them off, which is a huge problem. All right, so in that case, then what is the perfect sedative? So unfortunately, so, we don't have a perfect sedative. Right. Everyone that we talked about has one drawback, and I guess that makes them, you know, not perfect. So let's look at each one individually. We just talked about midazolam, like you said, Dr. Kane. Um, the active metabolites do accumulate over the period of time. Right, and I do remember actually learning, you know, we talked about it in school, okay, lorazepam is a nice option because it's one of those few of the, the benzos that does not have these active tablets. However, the nature of its formulation that it contains propylene glycol, which can then accumulate over time, it can be problematic there. Yep, and that propylene glycol can cause bad things like lactic acidosis, renal failure, and other bad problems. So it has to be monitored, especially in patients who have renal impairment. The next one, and probably one of my favorite drugs, period, is propofol or diprovan. I love propofol. If you get a chance, go to Wikipedia, look at the drug molecule of propofol. It may be the most beautiful drug structure you've ever seen in your life. It's perfectly symmetrical, very simple, beautiful drug. What are the things with propofol? Well, one thing, if you look at it, it looks like a milkshake. It's actually in a lipid emulsion. So that lipid emulsion that makes it so that the drug is soluble can accumulate and cause hypertriglyceridemia. So we have to look out for that. You know, when I talk in my nutritional lecture, we actually discuss the fact that if you're looking at a patient who you have to put on either enteral or total parenteral nutrition, you have to factor for these calories in terms of, of their overall daily requirements so that you don't, don't add calories. And there's also the fact that this can be a nice growth uh, habitat for microbes since it is fat-rich. Bacteria love to get in there and hang out a little bit. And kind of piggybacking off that, in the ICU, we actually changed the tubing of propofol every 12 hours because of the risk of bacterial growth in the tubing because there is no preservative in the propofol bottle. Once you hang it, it's 12 hours, got to change it. So some of the other downsides to propofol, hypotension bradycardia, so kind of diminishment of cardiovascular function. And we can also see this really rare thing called PRIS, propofol-related infusion syndrome. So this PRIS, when it does happen, it is best characterized by an elevation in the CPK or creatinine phosphokinase and also cardiovascular collapse, often leading to actually mortality. So of the patients that do get it, they typically have very, very high doses. Oftentimes they're trauma patients, head traumas, well described in the literature. So super rare, but something that we at least have to worry about. And I do know that with uh, the Presax or dexmedetomidine, there can be an issue as it works on these alpha receptors and and is similar to its cousins, maybe clonidine, the antihypertensive, is so we can have an issue of hypotension here, as well as maybe some, some bradycardia as well, because we're not doing anything for the beta receptors. Mm -hmm. And in terms of cost, just obviously the dose and the body weight of the patient matters in terms of dexmedetomidine cost, but a general rule of thumb is 
somewhere between three and four hundred dollars per day or about ten to twenty dollars per hour depending on the body weight and the dose for the patient and you can compare that to something like propofol or lorazepam where we're probably spending about ten to twenty dollars per day as opposed to per hour so it's a huge difference in cost. Yeah, that does sound like a very expensive medication to be on. And then we talked about morphine. So again, the glucuronide uh, metabolite, which is an active metabolite that can accumulate. And again, the side effects of morphine, as we know, it can also cause hypotension, itching, as well as uh, increased constipation with any opioid use here. And we have to be very wary of uh, risk of constipation in patients who are ICU. I know it sounds stupid to talk about constipation, but bowel regimens and bowel frequency is a huge discussion point on many ICU patients, especially if they've been in the ICU on a mechanical ventilator for a few days. We absolutely follow the number of bowel movements they have and often initiate prophylactic therapy to prevent some of the constipation associated with things like fentanyl and morphine. So since we talked about morphine, you touched on fentanyl as well, so it can also cause constipation. Any other concerns with fentanyl? So fentanyl is metabolized through 3A4, just like midazolam. So there are some drug interactions with the 3A4 pathway. With that said, though, the half-life of fentanyl is actually extremely short. So we're looking at a duration of effect of anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes with fentanyl. So even if you have a drug interaction that doubles your half-life, it becomes more like a morphine as opposed to a fentanyl. Morphine lasting between two and four hours. So there are drug interactions, whether they're clinically relevant or not in an ICU patient, probably not. But it's something that, as pharmacists, we should at least be aware of. And I know, Dr. King, we're talking a little bit today about the history of pharmacy. So this is, it's kind of interesting to look at how mechanical ventilation and the, the thoughts on it has changed over the years. I know in the 1960s, patients were generally kept fairly, fairly awake on mechanical ventilation. That was just how it was practiced. Yeah, and then when the 1970s came around, we started having uh, basically continuous infusion benzodiazepines, and we thought, hey, this is great. We can really make our patients super comfortable. They'll look like they're sleeping. They won't remember any aspect of their painful ICU stay and their horrible acute illness that they had, and whenever they're better, we'll, we'll just wake them up and uh, no harm, no foul. Right, and this was called basically snowing your patient. Absolutely, and uh, the problem with that, as we'll discuss, is at some point, if the patient gets better, we want to wake them up and get them off mechanical ventilation. So if we overdo it, we think that there are bad things that can happen if we snow the patient with too much sedation. Sure. I think, it, again, it parallels well with what we were doing from the in, in general psychiatric medicine at that time, going from the idea about just keeping somebody not, you know, completely snowed under versus, you know, trying to, you know, get somebody better, get them out, get them, you know, either treated or off the med in this, in this kind of case. Yeah, and the problem with snowing, again, like you mentioned, Dr. Kane, is longer duration of ventilation, uh, mechanical ventilation, and then longer duration of the stay, that equates to a lot of money costing to the patient as well as to the institution. Absolutely. And one of the philosophies of why snowing is a bad thing is if you think about it, if you were a patient on mechanical ventilation and you wake up, let's say, three times a day for 10 minutes, and then you fall back asleep because of the sedation regimen that you're on, you'll have no idea what day it is. You'll have no idea where you're at, why you're there. You will have no idea who's in the room. You'll be out of it. And because of that disorientation to your environment, disorientation to time and place, we think that that snowing philosophy of making patients look extremely comfortable is detrimental to their mental health because of that uh, dissociation from reality because of over-sedation. So I believe that, and that was something that started in the late 1990s, and the game changer 
or uh, in terms of practice, was an article that came out with the lead author of Crest that came out in the year 2000. This was actually a, a University of Chicago study that looked at uh, what they termed daily interruption of sedation. What that meant was that they randomized patients who were on mechanical ventilators, and they either gave them daily interruption of sedation, where they turned everything off, waited for either the patient to get really agitated, or waited for the patient to follow simple commands like sticking their tongue out, uh, tracking a, the provider with their eyes, things like that. Or they just did standard of care, which meant that whenever they thought the patient was ready to get off mechanical ventilation, they turned off their sedatives and analgesics and then waited for them to wake up and then extubated them. And what the thought process here was that we know things like midazolam and morphine are the biggest offenders for accumulation because of active metabolites. If we turn off our sedatives and our analgesics, wait for all of those active metabolites to go away, and then restart again, maybe we can prevent this pharmacology of over-sedation issue. Right. So then what did this study show as far as the outcomes go? That's what I think it was fairly interesting, I believe, is that the daily interruption, so from doing that daily interruption, they decreased the duration of the ventilation by two, two and a half days or 33% overall. And then ICU length of stay was a similar 33% reduction here, 3.5 days. And just think about that from a cost perspective. So we're doing something that costs no money. If anything, it saves money by using less drug. And we get the patient out of the ICU and off mechanical ventilation 33% faster. That's a huge deal in terms of money. Mechanical ventilators and ICU rooms cost a lot of money to the patient and to the institution. So this is a low or really no-cost intervention that can save a ton of money. Right, and probably this study did not look at these other outcomes, but if you can equate that or kind of theoretically say that less time on mechanical ventilation, less complications such as infections and uh, other issues. And that's all well and good, though, but what about any, any concerns about, you know, patients getting agitated? And what happens then if somebody gets, starts to get a agitated? Doesn't that contribute to maybe some bad outcomes, though? Sure. So the study, certainly because of the way that our practices were, we were worried about things like self-extubation, removal of central lines, removal of other catheters. And what they found was there was no difference in removing any of these devices or lines, uh, self-removal of these devices or lines. And of the events that did happen, they did not occur during the daily interruption period. From a safety perspective, it was incredibly safe. One of my favorite things of the trial was they also looked at the need for CT, MRI, or lumbar puncture to assess uh, why a patient wasn't waking up. So if you think of it this way, let's say you turn off your midazolam and your morphine, and you wait 12 hours and the patient is still deeply sedated. At this point, you have to wonder, did they have a stroke? Did, do they have meningitis that we didn't know about? Did something else happen from a CNS standpoint? So then you take them, send them to a CT scan or do a lumbar puncture or an MRI. They actually found a significant decrease in these three diagnostic tests for the purpose of uh, assessing mental status. So again, a huge cost savings. Right, which further can bring more cost savings to us. And then good thing about, you know, after this trial kind of published, we've had many more other trials that shown the similar approach and has shown that sedation minimization has been um, helping patients improve improve on uh, the length of stay in the hospital as well as, you know, length of uh, duration on mechanical ventilation. Again, that equates to saving more money as well. And then I know in practice, you know, articles can be, can be well and good, but a lot of times what we go by and we live and die by are what do the guidelines say? 
Unfortunately, SCCM, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, recently updated their sedation practice guidelines. They're called the uh, PAD guidelines, Pain, Agitation, Delirium Guidelines. And they've really incorporated a lot of these newer strategies that came about as a result of the CREST trial and many other trials that uh, came out after that, where they analyzed ways that we can, where we can minimize sedation for our ICU patients to improve outcomes. So what's the first step that they recommend in these particular patient populations? So the first step is called the A1 strategy. It's not the steak sauce, but it's analgesia first strategy. What that means is using analgesics, because we know our patients have pain, when we do surveys after patients are out of the ICU, very frequently they say that they had unmet pain needs, meaning that they had pain and we didn't treat it very well. So because of that, it makes sense that uh, we can be proactive whether we see that the patient truly has pain or not, but we can be proactive in providing analgesia through something like a fentanyl infusion to be able to make the patients have analgesia, but also, as we said earlier, that analgesia strategy provides some sedative quality, especially at higher doses. And that's been seen specifically with the opioids, and the nice thing they do is you're not going to have that amnestic property or lower overall awareness that you may be seen with something like a benzodiazepine. Exactly. Yeah, so actually the guideline is saying to avoid benzodiazepine because it is related to something called ICU delirium. And basically it defines as acute change in mental status, basically inattention, inability to follow the commands, and disorganized thinking or even altered level of consciousness. And this fits in a lot of what we're learning from other populations such as in geriatrics, that the idea about we almost create a type of disinhibition by overuse of some of these benzodiazepines. And not only you have the cognitive problems, but again, some of it's actually almost counterintuitively, at least based on our current understanding, that allow for certain behaviors to then come through. So of the data that we do have, we believe that the use of benzodiazepines versus another sedation strategy increases your risk of ICU delirium by about 20 to 30%. And the incidence rate is somewhere between 60 and uh, 80%. So if that gives you some idea, um, you can decrease a patient's risk of ICU delirium to around the 50 to 60% range as opposed to being up in the 80% range. So it does have a pretty good impact on uh, reducing ICU delirium. Right. And the reason we want to reduce ICU delirium because it is associated with mortality. So again, benzos are not shown to increase mortality or cause mortality. However, if we put patients on benzos and cause ICU delirium, it has shown to increase mortality. So we want to avoid any of those issues too. It's the whole A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C problem. We, we associate benzos with delirium. We associate delirium with bad things, but we haven't directly shown the use of benzodiazepines causes some of these bad things aside from uh, length of mechanical ventilation. We do know that using benzos instead of propofol or dexmedetomidine will increase your length of uh, mechanical ventilation. So I guess we're boiling down to last two agents, propofol and dexmedetomidine? Absolutely, and that's what the recommendation is. Once you've achieved your A1 strategy with something like a fentanyl drip, if you do need a sedative, you should be looking at propofol or dexmedetomidine. And so then we'll be looking at, I believe, so a two-day decrease on average in the duration of medical, uh, mechanical ventilation, although I do believe that there was, appears that there is no difference in the ICU length of state, unfortunately. And that's kind of a, an interesting finding that uh, compared to benzodiazepines, using either of these agents gets people off the vent two days quicker, but they stay in the ICU the same amount of time. One of the issues is length of stay in general is a very tricky thing to look at because 
the variation is so wide. Some people will be in the ICU a very short amount of time, some others will be in a very long amount of time. So you really need a, a large patient population to show a difference between these two findings that could have a very large range associated with them. So if you're saying the outcomes with propofol and dexmedetomidine are equal, then in your pra uh, practice, Dr. Kane, have you seen that hospitals will choose one agent over the other since we already talked about how dexmedetomidine is a little bit more expensive compared to propofol? So some of the first dexmedetomidine data that came out were dexmedetomidine versus benzodiazepines, and they did show an improvement in mechanical ventilation versus midazolam or lorazepam. So at one point, it was thought that using dexmedetomidine made sense because we could improve mechanical ventilation. After that, though, they did a dexmedetomidine versus propofol study, which was a study that many people really wanted to have happen. And in that study, it was called the PRODEX trial. There was no difference in many of the clinical endpoints, including ICU length of stay and duration of mechanical ventilation. So the short story is, at one time, it looked like Presidex had an edge, but after the PRODEX trial, they lost the edge against propofol. So I guess it comes down to a matter of, you know, which one of these agents are we can kind of choose. And does anyone have any preferences, Dr. Kane? I love propofol. Propofol is my favorite drug, and it's cheaper. It has a similar adverse effect profile in terms of hypotension bradycardia. The only caveat to it is that triglyceride issue with it because of its lipid emulsion. With that said, many patients actually don't even need propofol or dexmedetomidine. Oftentimes, we can control patients on mechanical ventilation with either PRN benzodiazepines or uh, just a fentanyl drip alone, not reaching for our sedative. And that's really exciting given that we know the more awake a patient is, the easier they are to get off mechanical ventilation, the more they can participate in their own care, the more they can uh, do range of motion and things like that to become less deconditioned. So it's exciting to think that not every patient needs uh, high-dose propofol infusion to basically knock them out until they're over their acute illness. So then to kind of readdress the original question, many patients or many practitioners probably still feel like, oh, I totally want to be knocked out if I'm on mechanical ventilation. But the problem is that that philosophy means that you'll be on mechanical ven ventilation at least two days longer with a snowing strategy where you get high doses of sedatives that accumulate and cause issues. Even with propofol, we still think that minimizing the use of any sedative is probably a good idea in terms of cognitive delay that can last up to six months after your ICU stay. So the more involved with your patient care you are, the better off you're going to be. So I believe there's still, I believe would you agree, there's room then for some interpatient variability because again, if you have somebody who does have a profound fear of waking up amongst it, then we probably have to take those into account. But again, doing it in a way that we're going to provide a sufficient level of sedation but not cause some of these outcomes such as, you know, communicate with them, you know, about the risk of increased length of stay and thus to avoid situation will lead to more complications down the road. And all the more reason to monitor. So we have standardized monitoring scales that are recommended by the guidelines in terms of um, what is an appropriate amount of sedation. So generally, we want our patients to be able to open their eyes, to follow commands and things like that. At worst, we want them to have their eyes closed but be able to open on command. We don't want patients where you actually have to touch them in order for them to wake up. They're too deeply sedated unless they're receiving deep sedation for something else, like they're on a paralytic, as an example. Got it. So that sedation assessment is just as important as the selection of our agent and is just as important as minimizing sedation when we can. Well, wonderful. I think I'm going to change my answer from the beginning. I'm going to say I'm going to use the daily interruption strategy and get out of the ICU a couple of days faster. Yeah, I think I'll take my milkshake, but I think I'll hold the propofol on this one. <laughs>
Sounds like a plan. So for the Helix Talk audience, if you haven't done so already, we really love reading those positive reviews in the iTunes store. Uh, you can also find us at helixtalk.com, which also has a link to the iTunes store to give those positive reviews. So with that, I'll go ahead and sign off. I'm Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And as always, study hard. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science. For more information about the show, please visit us at helixtalk.com.